0: Faith and Reason podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. You're listening to Stephen P. White, fellow in the Catholic Studies program at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, giving a talk entitled, Bruised, Hurting, and Dirty, Catholic Citizenship in the 21st Century. Mr. White's talk was sponsored by the Center for Leadership at Franciscan University of Steubenville. The title uh, of my talk is Bruised, Hurting, and Dirty, Catholic Citizenship in the 21st Century. Um, and I hope you'll you'll excuse me if I if I go a little bit heavy on the uh, go a little bit light on the policy side and a little bit heavy on the the, the theological uh, and evangelical side, if you will. Um, where I come from, that's the side that gets talked about less. The side of public life that gets talked about less, but it's by far the more important. At a place like Steubenville, it's not neglected as much as it is other places. Um, I'll focus on that tonight. I chose the title if you recognize bruised, hurting, and dirty. It comes from a, a, a quote that Pope Francis uses. He says he's been using it for a long time and he liked to uh, say this a lot to his priests uh, in, in Buenos Aires when he was Archbishop there. He said, I prefer a church which is bruised, hurting, and dirty because it has been out on the streets rather than a church which is unhealthy from being confined and clinging to its own security. I do not want a church concerned with being at the center and which then ends up being caught in a web of obsessions and procedures. If something should rightly disturb us and trouble our consciences, it is, in, it is the fact that so many of our brothers and sisters are living without the strength, light and consolation born of friendship with Jesus Christ, without a community of faith to support them, without meaning And a goal in life more than by fear of going astray my hope is that we will be moved by the fear of remaining shut up within structures which give us a false sense of security within rules which make us harsh harsh judges within habits which make us feel safe well at our door people are starving and Jesus does not tire of saying to us give them something to eat next month will mark the first anniversary of this young pontificate, which makes it, uh, it seems like more than a year. Uh, it's been a rather exciting 12, or 11, almost 12 months. And I'm sure you guys are not ignorant of the many uh, controversies and kerfuffles that have arisen during this young pontificate, often about things the pope has said, which tend to challenge our notions of what popes should say. Some people find this troubling. Some people find it confusing. Some people find it puzzling. Some people have decided not to listen anymore. Um, there are a lot of different rea- reactions. And I want to talk about some of the things Pope Francis has said. I can't cover all of them. Um, and I want to put them first in the context of uh, some of the comments that previous popes have, have made, particularly the, his two predecessors, John, uh, Blessed John Paul II and Pope Benedict XVI. Um, And in reflecting on those, find some some place for continuity. Uh, The second thing I want to do is is ask this question and try and answer this question. What tools do we have as Catholic Christians for addressing the challenges that we face uh, in our world today? The three challenges I'm gonna talk about specifically, um, taking one each from the last three popes, uh, are the culture of death, the dictatorship of relativism, and what Francis has called the culture of waste, or a throwaway culture. I want to ask what tools we have to address these problems that we all acknowledge, and to actually emphasize the limits that our tools have. We have some, some of the tools that we've used in the past as a church, as individuals, uh, to promote and defend the faith seem to lack traction these days. They don't seem to be making the headway that we're used to them making. I want to talk about why that is and what we might be able to do about it. Third, not to spoil the ending, but I want to look at what can be accomplished through the one tool, if you will, uh, that always works, which is love, specifically the love that comprehends, that is comprehended in Pope Francis's claim, how I would love a church that is poor and for the poor. So that's where we're going. Hopefully, having outlined that, it will make it easier for you to follow where I'm going. Let's begin uh, with the culture of death. It's a cheerful place to begin. We're familiar with this phrase. The first phrase was actually culture of life, and culture of death was sort of brought up as a, as a counterpoint to the, to the positive idea of a culture of life. In 1993, uh, I believe in Denver, Uh, Pope John Paul II spoke of a a culture of life, the need to build a culture of life. We're all familiar, I hope we're all familiar, um, uh, with the challenges that we have in our society uh, regarding the dignity of human life, Uh, from uh, abortion to euthanasia, uh, human trafficking. Um, We've seen, especially in recent years, it's been years now, uh, with the HHS mandate, our government trying to coerce uh, even religious institutions into paying for, essentially, or providing services that are not just contrary to uh, a, a Catholic understanding of the meaning of human sexuality but are actually abortifacients in many cases. Um, there have been great debates within the United States and elsewhere about how uh, our faith should, should shape the way politicians behave in regard to this. The been uh, unabashed in its defense of human life, especially in the womb. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if many of you here have uh, prayed outside of abortion clinics or have made the trip down to the March for Life. In many ways, the pro-life movement in the United States has been uh, a wild success, especially compared to other other places uh, in the Western world, where they have really struggled to build uh, a social response Uh, to the culture of death. The fact that hundreds of thousands of people show up every year, even in lousy weather, like we had here, uh, to stand up for the rights of the unborn is a truly remarkable thing, and something that doesn't happen many other places. Someone was telling me recently, the Italians had a march for life, and about 6,000 people showed up in Rome, and they were happy with that. In 1995, Pope John Paul II wrote Evangelium Vitae, the Gospel of Life. And I want to, to, to focus on two passages from that. The first cuts to the heart of the matter as a, as a political question, as a legal question. To claim, I'm, I'm quoting here, to claim the right to abortion, infanticide, and euthanasia, and to recognize that right in law means to attribute to human freedom a perverse and evil significance, that of an absolute power over others. Uh, sorry, that of an absolute power over others and against others. This is the death of true freedom. And he quotes the Gospel of John. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Not only is this a direct uh, condemnation of the defense of, of certain practices in law, or the failure of law to defend human life, even at the margins, he ties here... Freedom and truth together. He calls the defense of abortion in law the death of true freedom. Truth and freedom are a theme that John Paul takes up frequently throughout his writings. And they're a theme that will be taken up again by his successor, Cardinal, uh, then Cardinal Ratzinger, uh, Benedict XVI. Pope John Paul II spoke about the need for a renewal of a culture of life putting the emphasis on the the renewal beginning in Christian families and Christian communities. Again, I quote, we need to begin with the renewal of a culture of life within Christian communities themselves. Too often it happens that believers, even those who take an active part in the life of the church, end up by separating their Christian faith from its ethical requirements concerning life and thus fall into moral subjectivism and certain objectionable ways of acting. With great openness and courage, we need to question how widespread is the culture of life today among individual Christians, families, groups, and communities in our own dioceses. Having tied the culture of death and the culture of life to the question of the relationship between freedom and truth, uh, the Pope insists that the reform of that, the building of a culture of life, must begin within our own Christian communities lest we fall into subjectivism, moral subjectivism and objectionable moral behavior. At the mass to pray for the election of a Roman pontiff, the pro Elegendo Romano Pontifice, then Cardinal Ratzinger, who was the dean of the College of Cardinals at the time, gave the homily. And it's often said that this homily was so impressive and his, his Uh, the way he carried himself through all the proceedings during the interregnum after the death of Pope John Paul II uh, made such an overwhelming impression on his brother cardinals that they they elected him Pope. It was in that homily just before he was elected Pope, two days, I think, before he was elected Pope, that he first used the phrase the dictatorship of relativism. Recall before I read that quote in its context. Uh, Pope John Paul II's insistence that freedom and truth must be tethered together. This is what Cardinal Ratzinger said. Today, having a clear faith based on the creed of the church is often labeled as fundamentalism, whereas relativism, that is, letting oneself be tossed here and there, carried about by every wind of doctrine, seems the only attitude that can cope with modern times. We are building a dictatorship of relativism. Notice, we are building a dictatorship of relativism. That does not recognize anything as definitive and whose ultimate goal consists solely of one's own ego and desires. We, meaning Christians, however, have a different goal. The Son of God, the true man, he is the measure of true humanism, An adult faith is not a faith that follows the trends of fashion and the latest novelty. A mature adult faith is deeply rooted in friendship with Christ. Remember that, rooted in friendship with Christ. This is something Pope Francis talks about a lot and he is given credit as though he invented this phrase or this concept. Those who have been paying attention know it's not so. It is this friendship with Christ that opens us up to all that is good and gives us a criterion to distinguish the true from the salt from the false and deceit from truth we must develop this adult faith we must guide the flock to christ of christ to his, this faith and is this faith only faith that creates unity and is fulfilled in love our culture clings to the notion of tolerance i'm sure you are all familiar with this it doesn't always extend uh, to the kinds of views that Christians tend to hold, but we are told that we ought to be tolerant of everybody. Tolerant no matter the lifestyle, no matter uh, the effect it has on other people, even children. We are willing slaves to the self-autonomous will, or the, the, the autonomous self, I should say. We do this in the name of tolerance. We tolerate things So long as they don't hurt someone else, not by the measure of whether they are truly good or not, but by whether they violate someone else's rights. This is done, in fact, in the name of peace. It is said that to make absolute claims about the truth is to insist that someone else who disagrees with you is outside the protection of the law or is somehow worthy of being cast out of society. But in fact, Relativism does not guarantee peace. If there's only your truth and my truth and no the truth between us, then we've not established the conditions of peace. We have in fact eliminated the possibility of reconciliation. If there is no truth on which we can find common ground, then there is no possibility for reconciliation. There's only your will and my will and one of us loses and one of us wins. This is the situation we find ourselves in today. We find ourselves in a world that hopes to build a peaceful and prosperous society, but its hope is founded explicitly on the absence of faith. I think of the predecessors of our scientists and our chemists the alchemists who sought to to turn lead into gold we have a new alchemy that seeks to create hope without faith and thus without love so much for the dictatorship of relativism pope francis began his pontificate by offering a nod to pope to his predecessors concept of the dictatorship of relativism. He mentioned it himself in one of his first homilies. But he has become uh, better known, shall we say, for speaking about the culture of waste, or the culture of uh, wastefulness, or the throwaway culture There's another way that he puts it. This is sort of funny. Someone tweeted a picture recently. Someone gave the pope a statue of himself. If there's anything Pope Francis wants, we all know it's a giant statue of himself. (laughs) Uh, But this one was made out of several hundred pounds of chocolate, which is even more useless. And I I, I quipped to someone that with all the talk he's made about not wasting food, he better start eating. (coughs) I want to begin, the, the culture of waste is not simply about not finishing your lunch. He has said a lot about, about not wasting food and things like that. But his, his uh, Pope Francis, when he talks about the culture of waste, he's, he's addressing a much deeper problem than simply waste. He's addressing a problem that essentially has to do with how we treat material goods, how we treat the material world. Bear with me here. In a world in which the stuff around us is dumb stuff, okay, in which the stuff around us, whether it's material resources or food or wealth or even people, okay, are just stuff that we can use as we please. Um, if, if things bear no intrinsic meaning, have no intrinsic end, are not for anything other than what we wish to make of them, then there's no reason that we shouldn't treat things however we want. Most people in this room, I hope, would cringe at the thought of beating a dog for no reason. It would be an inhumane thing to do. There is a certain modern mentality that treats all things, all material things, as so much matter, right? The hydrogen atoms in a dog are no different than the hydrogen atoms in that chair, which are no different than the hydrogen atoms in me. This idea started mostly with Rene Descartes. And it's not, keep in mind, it's not a view of the world that eliminates the soul. It's not necessarily a world that denies any spiritual reality. It simply denies that there is a connection between the spiritual world and the material world. That there is anything in the material world, in matter, okay, that points to any intrinsic truth, or any truth outside of itself, so an extrins- extrinsic truth. Stuff is stuff. It's all jiggling molecules. It's all summed up in Einstein's famous equation, energy equals mass times the speed of light squared. Everything that is, is mass and energy. If there is such a thing as a soul, it has no bearing on, on the material world. What does this have to do with the culture of waste? I'm getting there. If we deny the meaning of stuff, this podium, the wood it was made from, the trees, ourselves, we're denying some truth about our creator. The material world is so much stuff bereft of intrinsic meaning and incapable of pointing to or reflecting to the one is our creator, then as I said, we may do with this stuff as we please. And since we too are stuff, or at least our bodies are stuff, we may do with our bodies as we please. My body, my choice. But it's not just choosing, it is not just choosing bad things that becomes possible. We lose the ability to see limited evils in the light of a greater good. We lose the ability to see physical suffering as something that has redemptive power. We fail to see that we rejoice at the beginning of life but that there's also a chance to rejoice at the end of life. We fail to see that brokenness and suffering can in fact point to God and can make us more like him This does not entail a rejection of the spiritual, as I said, this this materialistic view. It simply separates them, the material and the physical. The culture of death, or the culture of waste, or the dictatorship of relativism, does not need to deny spiritual realities. Our world, after all, even in the midst of the dictatorship of relativism, is as spiritual as ever. We're not being run by a bunch of atheists. Everyone these days is spiritual but not religious. So well, the culture of death, or the culture of waste, and the dictatorship of relativism do not need to deny spirituality, they do and must deny the incarnation. The culture of waste, the culture of death, the dictatorship of relativism, all can recognize a god, even a spiritual god, but they cannot, it cannot, by definition, recognize a Christian god. A god who took on a human body, who was born of a woman, who ate fish at the, shore of the Sea of Galilee with his friends, who suffered, who wept at the tomb of his friend Lazarus, a God who was crucified and died and rose again. This, the dictatorship of relativism, the culture of death and the culture of waste cannot countenance. They cannot even imagine it. That's my initial diagnosis of where we stand. The culture of death that John Paul II spoke about, okay, where we don't treat human beings with the dignity that is owed to them. The dictatorship of relativism, in which we relativize all the values in our world and end up left with nothing but our wills to impose one upon the other. And the culture of waste, the denial of the spiritual realities, intrinsic and material things that lead us to treat things as though they don't matter, and therefore we waste them. These things are all tied together and listed together and shown as being interrelated. They can seem a very daunting and ominous foe, and they should. Ours is not always a pleasant world. So what tools do we have to fight back? I want to focus on, there are lots of tools that we have to fight against this culture, to fight against the implications of this culture. I want to focus on three of them, and at the risk of being even more depressing, I, tell you, I want to explain why each of them is less effective than we might think it would be, or is not as effective as it once was. <coughs> the first is the natural law. Hopefully, I'm confident, most of you are learning about the natural law here in Steubenville. And along with the natural law, we can include all of the great uh, intellectual tradition of the, of the church, a great treasure. One of the, who here, you can show your hands, who here knows who Ryan Anderson is? Okay, Ryan Anderson is a friend of mine who has been going around the country doing the very unenviable task of defending traditional marriage. He doesn't always receive a warm welcome, but he has some of the best, most coherent arguments for traditional marriage that you will find anywhere. If you want to know how to argue for traditional marriage between a man and woman, go to Ryan Anderson. There's one criticism of Ryan, and I hope this criticism will start to go away, but so far this has been a criticism, which is that he doesn't seem to be convincing a lot of people. People like me who already agree with him about several things find his arguments excellent and compelling. But they're built on presuppositions about nature, including human nature, that our culture simply does not share. Let me pose to you one example. If marriage uh, is intrinsically ordered towards the procreation, as the natural law would say it is, as the Catholic Church certainly insists it is, if marriage is intrinsically ordered towards procreation then it's easy to see the difference between sexual relationships between a man and a woman, a conjugal marital act, and homosexual acts. Homosexual acts cannot be geared towards procreation. It's not very complicated. But if human sexuality is not intrinsically geared toward procreation, if marriage does not necessarily entail openness to procreation, If marriage is, as our culture has been saying for decades, about the love between two people with children as sort of an option, they don't come standard; they're an option. You can get them if you want them. It's up to your taste. They're not essential to marriage. They're not part of the essence of marriage. If that's the truth, and our our culture has said that that's the truth for a very, very long time, then there is no reason that two men can't be married. Do you understand why? Do you see why? If marriage is just about two people who love each other, and it has nothing to do with making new people, okay, then biology, the complementarity of man and woman, don't have much to do with it at all. And if we, people who would defend traditional marriage, are denying something to people, okay, based on something that's extrinsic to the matter at hand, then we're doing something unjust. We should treat, justice is unjust to treat like things differently, right? Equality before the law, right? But if you grant the presupposition of the defenders of same-sex marriage, or the proponents of same-sex marriage, that marriage is not intrinsically ordered toward procreation, and most Americans grant that, okay. then you are, then to treat a, a homosexual couple t- differently than a same-sex couple is to treat like things differently, and that is unjust. If you don't grant the the view that marriage is, intrinsically geared towards procreation, and then you try and base your marriage policy on that, most people will think that you are actually doing something unjust. That's not just a lot of blather, they actually think that. Because given their presupposition that marriage has nothing intrinsically to do with babies, they're right, it is unjust. You see the problem here. The argument starts, we, we, the disagreement is about first principles, it's about axioms what is the nature of marriage? How you answer that question will determine everything that follows from that. But where do you learn the definition of marriage? Where do you learn what marriage is? For most people, that's not something that you argue to. You don't arrive at what you think marriage is through an argument. You learn it through experience. Marriage is about love. So the arguments from the natural law are very difficult to make when there's no agreement as to what nature is. This touches not only on the dictatorship of relativism, which we see now, but you can see how this ties into a a throwaway culture that treats material stuff, including our bodies, as insignificant, in the sense that they don't signify anything. They're just stuff. If that's our starting point, then defending traditional marriage doesn't make any sense. It literally does not make any sense. It's irrational. And probably bigoted. This is not a good position for defenders of traditional marriage to find themselves in. Uh, a second challenge, if I can find my page. Second challenge, second, second way that we, second tool that we can use, and here we get closer to the question of citizenship, okay, uh, is active engagement in politics. There's a movement in this country that's generally known as social conservatism, which means lots of things to lots of people. But generally, social conservatism means that you're, if you're a social conservative, you're pro-life, um, uh, you know, you're pro-marriage, pro-traditional marriage. Okay, you can go down the list of what that usually means. Okay, and we can change the culture in part by engaging in politics, which is true. But here again, we run into a. a uh, a seemingly intractable problem, which is intractable problem, which is this: ethics. Social conservatism often implies a certain conservative ethical code, right? It's not always spoken of as, a, as a, an explicitly Christian moral code. That's generally what it means. But very often, when someone talks about social conservatism as, movement, as a political movement in this country, what they're talking about is conservative social ethics. And now we've arrived at the exact same problem we had with the talk of the natural law. How society ought to function has a lot to do, how you see society, uh, how you think society ought to function has an awful lot to do with what you think society is. If a family is simply a contracted party, two people decide to come together, sign a piece of paper and that makes them a family, if local communities are interchangeable, if churches are simply uh, aggregations of individuals, in short, if social entities are not in fact entities, they have no actual worth of their own, if they're just the sum of their parts, then what you're left with is there is no such thing as society. As Margaret Thatcher, unfortunately, once said, there is no such thing as society. There's individuals, and she said, and families, which was closer to the truth. Okay. My point is this. There are social realities okay, that, that are prior to law. Here's what I mean by that. I have rights, obligations, and duties towards my family because they are my family. I have rights, obligations, and duties towards my wife, not because the government says that we're married, but because I do, right? Um, My membership in the Catholic Church, okay, is something that exists, is a real thing. It's a real human relationship. It's not simply a contract. And because it exists as part of the social fabric, it's something that law should recognize And law should recognize a domain in which the relationship between me and the church is allowed to play out under its own freedom and autonomy. The state, for example, should not treat me like a neighbor. I should treat my neighbor like a neighbor. My priest should treat me like one of his congregants. I should treat my wife like my wife. The state should not treat me like my priest or my wife or my neighbor. When the state treats me like a neighbor, it is taking liberties, right? When I treat someone, when you have a friend who you know very well, and you treat them in a suddenly formal way, if I were to go up to my wife and say, "Um, Mrs. White, I need to speak to you, she might think that there's something wrong. People who are close speak informally. Formal relationships are appropriate to other kinds of relationships. The way we behave in society reflects this. We know the difference between how I should treat my children and how I should treat my neighbor. My neighbor should not treat my children the way I do. He's not their father. These are not just social constructs. These are not accidents of history. There is a shape contours to society that are real and exist prior to the political arrangement. When the political arrangement is such that it does not recognize those, problems result. Which is why social conservatism that is unable to account for the social realities that we're trying to regulate, we're trying to account for, and simply asserts an ethical relationship. The relationship between the father and his son is this. That's an assertion. The relationship between the government and the church should be this. Those assertions carry very little weight if they're not backed up by a common understanding of what society is and what the different levels of society are, We talk a lot about social justice. Justice is something that exists between two parties or more. Social justice is not simply about equality. Social justice is not simply about fairness. Social justice is about the different levels of society existing in right relationship with the other levels of society, okay? For there to be justice between the different levels of society, though, we have to assume that the different levels of society are, in fact, subjects of justice, right? That a family has rights. That a husband and wife have different rights than two people who are not married. Why is that? Why do I have different rights with regard to my child than I do with respect to someone else's child? Is that just the way the law says it is? Is that a social construct? Or is the law trying to reflect a pre-existing r- reality? I say it's the latter. That when it comes to things like family or the way we treat the church or the way we treat marriages, the law is attempting to reflect the realities of how society actually exists. Okay. But when we as a society decide that these things exist because that's the way law says they exist, that the social arrangements in which we live are subject to popular referendum, then we have a real problem. We live in such a society. People see, and this is not just a problem of the political left, a lot of people on the political right see this, the left and the right, okay. That society is just simply a bunch of individuals who have agreed for the sake of convenience, to enter into certain kinds of contracts, marriage contracts, social contracts. Right? Okay. That there is no such thing, uh, that there exists nothing in society between the state and the individual. Okay. This is a very dangerous thing to understand. If it's true, by the way, that there's nothing between the state and the individual, then that leaves us exposed. The last, and this is for Catholics, this is challenging, The last tool that we have against this culture of ours that is sadly ineffective these days is ecclesiastical life. The sacraments. Now please understand what I'm saying and what I'm not saying. Prayer is powerful. Not just psychologically powerful, prayer is powerful. My guess is if you're here at the university, you understand that. What I mean is this, for a long time in Christian history, the sacraments which were uh, celebrated within the confines of the parish, usually, were a source of catechesis and grace, enrichment for the lives of Christians. And most everyone was a Christian. They lived in such a way that they came into contact with the sacraments. That's not the case now. Whatever beauty there is in the liturgy, whatever strength there is to be found in the sacraments of confirmation and baptism, are of little help to those who never experience these sacraments. The Eucharist is the source and summit of the Christian life. We know this, right? We believe this. Less than half of Catholics in this country go to mass on Sunday. Okay. They're cutting themselves off from the source and summit. This is not to say that the power of the sacraments is diminished by our bad culture, it's not, okay? It's simply to say that, that within the church, looking within itself, okay, we are going to find a lot of people who are sinners and in need of redemption because that's why we're there, okay. But most people aren't there now. Even in Catholic countries, most people aren't there. You can't wait for people to come in and encounter God in the sacraments if they never come into the church, the physical building of the church, Okay. For 1,500 years or so, the church has had this paradigm, which was largely, in most places, uh, a a role of, this is sort of a a term that cuts both both ways, but institutional maintenance, in Europe, In the Middle Ages, everyone was Catholic, okay? Everyone was Catholic. Everyone was expected to be at church, to avail themselves of the sacraments. If they didn't, there were social and even political consequences, Today, people just don't pass through the church. They don't have their children baptized. They ask any priest, they'll tell you the number of marriages are down. It's not because there are fewer people getting married. They just don't come to the church to get married, okay? Why? In our culture, the power of the sacraments isn't diminished, but people's access to them is diminished because of their own choices. They stay away. All three of these tools that I've named, the natural law and intellectual tradition of the church, political engagement, social conservatism, and the sacraments, obviously, are very important. Our challenging times don't diminish the importance of any of these at all. I mention them, and their inadequacy simply by way of saying that we need something more. Okay. There has to be something that can fill the gap in the line, if who you will. Okay. Uh, if these ways of, of engaging culture have lost traction because of the particular circumstances of our culture in our day and age, okay, then we have to look somewhere else. That something else is not new. We hear a lot about new evangelization. Each of the things that I've mentioned are part of the new evangelization and have important roles to play. In many ways, the new evangelization is a a re-evangelization of finding people who were once Christian or cultures that were once Christian and bringing them back home. But it is also a new evangelization in the sense that it's a a new Pentecost, which is a phrase Pope John Paul II used. And that the church when it was first born in that upper room uh, did not have a long and glorious intellectual tradition. It had zero political clout. In fact, they were wanted by the authorities. It did have the sacraments in some form, all there in coit, but it didn't have churches, didn't have parishes, it barely had members, and yet it spread. How? The power of the Holy Spirit. Yep, that's a simple answer. There are a lot of answers. There are a lot of Catholic answers to life that are very simple, very easy, very obvious. They're answers to everything. Love, the Holy Spirit, okay? But they don't always clarify what we must do. Let me make an attempt at clarifying that. The gospel was not first spread by a philosophy. It was not spread as a code of ethics or a political way of living. It It was spread... Um, by love love that was accomplished through the power of the Holy Spirit so great was this love that so great was the power of the Spirit that Christians were willing to die even joyfully for the sake of proclaiming what they had found what they had been given and they were known by their love They will know you are Christians by your love. By the grace of baptism, the love of God for the world shines through us. Because through baptism it is he who resides in us. As St. Paul said, it is not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. As we heard in the gospel yesterday, it was very nice of the Holy Church to arrange this, that the gospel yesterday was about the light of the world and being salt. Uh, for a talk about engaging culture. Thank you. This brings us to um, Pope Francis's recent apostolic exhortation, Evangelii Gaudium. He warns about something in there called what he calls spiritual worldliness. Uh, He warns that we must not grow content uh, with power and programs, okay. he, he talks about, I forget the quote. I didn't bring it with me. He talks at one point about um, sort of these, these grand schemes and pastoral plans that dioceses put together okay. that are really nice ideas, but they forget sort of a basic element of evangelization, of Christian love, which is that you have to go and you have to talk to people. Okay. Christian, the Christian faith isn't spread as an idea. In fact, there's a quote from Pope Benedict in, in Deus Caritas Est, which Pope Francis is very, very fond of quoting, qu- quotes at all times. He says, Christianity is not the result of an ethical choice or an idea. It's the result of an encounter with a person, Jesus Christ. And that encounter changes everything. It fundamentally alters the way we see the world. That change, Um, makes love and makes Christian witness a tool that never dulls, even in a world as cynical and cut off from the truth as ours. The logic of love, if you can call it that, the argument of love, the language of love, the long, slow language of love, is undiminished by the skepticism of our current age. If you live, I always like saying this in a room where there are actually crucifixes. If you live like that, if you live a cruciform life, people will understand. Okay. This doesn't happen necessarily in discrete heroic acts, but it happens over a very long time. I don't know about you, but I think that I know what love is to the degree that I do by having experienced it over long periods of time someone who loves me, as my parents did, for example, okay. for years and years and years before I had any idea or any concept of what that really meant. Okay. But they loved me even before I understood. And they didn't wait for me to return that love. They loved me as, um, as God loves his children unconditionally, persistently, despite the things that parents or are sometimes told by their children, and we sometimes say to God, okay, may you." Okay. Hopefully we won't say that to God, but, but children are, rebel against their parents, and parents love them unconditionally, okay, the same with us and God. The language of love is compelling, it remains compelling in today's day and age. This this was supposed to be a talk, as the title indicated, about citizenship. I haven't avoided it. I haven't cut it out, but I want to make clear how we've gotten to where we are. Most of the things that we call good citizenship, okay, uh, things like uh, voting, okay, serving in jury duty, okay. Uh, What's another example? Paying your taxes on time. These are important, and that does that uh, that that is required for good citizenship. <clears throat> but most of, of being a good citizen doesn't take place in those arenas. Voting doesn't make you a good citizen. Even voting in every tiny, even meaningless election doesn't make you a good c- citizen. Serving in public office does not make you a good citizen. Most of our civic life, takes place outside of the voting booth. What I'm getting at here is that the best thing you can do as citizens is to live good Christian lives. Like I said, Catholics often have obvious unhelpful answers that are nonetheless true. Most citizenship is exercised in our communities, with our neighbors, our fellow parishioners, how we operate our businesses, how we, which businesses we patronize, This is the, these are the places between me and the government where citizenship plays out. And how I act, how I behave, who I am in that public realm is dictated by how I relate to God. My relationship with God shapes me. When I enter the public sphere, that comes with me. So it's not just the things that I say. It's not just the things that I do. It's the virtues or vices that I have acquired that come with me. The best thing you can do for your fellow citizens is to be a good person. We did not arrive in the state we are now, the culture of death, the dictatorship of relativism, the culture of waste. We did not arrive here because of bad philosophy, though that did not help. It wasn't just bad laws, though we all know very well uh, 53 million abortions since Roe versus Wade. One of the defining characteristics of our contemporary society is alienation. Our societies are disintegrating. The family is breaking down, The sources of solidarity in our lives are increasingly absent, and my pages are out of order. I want to tell you very briefly a story, and I I won't talk much longer, but very briefly a story about that, that illustrates part of this point. About the breakdown of society, and gets me, and will take me to my final point. When I was in London with the St. Patrick's Evangelization School, I met a man named Hawk. That wasn't his real name, but that was his, that was his um, Hell's Angels name. He was an old Hell's Angel. Uh, he was uh, elder. El, he wasn't elderly. Um, he was disabled. He had been in the Falklands War. At least that's what he told me. The the Malvinas War, which you guys probably don't remember. Um, Great Britain and Argentina fought a very brief war in the 80s. Anyway, he walked around the streets of London. and I ran into him one day while we were doing street evangelization. And he had his gear on, his leather vest and everything, and his hair slicked back, and his beard, and he was kind of grizzled and tough. Anyway, we stuck up, struck up something of a friendship. One day he asked me if he could, I could come to his apartment in East London, to his flat. They don't say apartment, his flat in East London and help him, he needed to go to the grocery store. Uh, And I'm a pretty big guy and he had bad knees or something like that, so I could help him carry the groceries. (coughs) So I said fine. So I went out there and uh, we got the groceries and brought them back to his apartment. And he lived in this little flat that was, it was very small, but it was impeccably neat. He had, I don't know, 200 little miniature Harley Davidson models on his wall. And we talked. And, and he unloaded the groceries and then he did something that was neat. He, he the area where he lived for, he, the, the, apartment was provided by the state. He had a small pension from the state. Okay. So he was, he was modest but comfortable life. Uh, and he asked if I could have a, if I wanted a cup of tea. Sure. Okay. So he went and he made me a cup of tea. I don't think I'm making it up when I say that making me a cup of tea was the thing that he enjoyed most about that day. In fact, the thing that he enjoyed most about any of the times that I was with him. And here's why, I think. Hawk had, like I said, a comfortable life. The state provided for his housing. The state provided him a small pension. He had his little model, Harley Davidson's. Okay. His material needs were met by any standard. They were met. Society said, we will give you what you need, which is nice, okay? Whether it's through the state or charity, that's a, sort of a separate discussion I want to get into. But the fact is that society had provided for his material needs, which is good. But in doing so, society had also said, not intentionally, but had made it very clear that you have really nothing to offer. We'll give you what you need. We don't expect anything in return. My showing up and carrying groceries for him was a small favor. Being there so that he could make a cup of tea for somebody was a huge deal. Love, charity is important, giving of ourselves. We all know this. We talk about it, the importance of sacrifice. But part of love, part of what completes love is allowing someone else to love you that means putting yourself in a position of vulnerability because as dehumanizing and demeaning as it can be to be deprived of material goods, to be poor in that sense, the most dehumanizing thing is to be told that you have nothing to offer, that you cannot love because no one is there to accept it. And we know that's not true. There's no situation in which you can't love. But to be surrounded by people who need nothing from you, to to be told day in and day out in a thousand different ways you have nothing to offer is dehumanizing. If we're made for love, then the inability to love, being told that no one wants your love in whatever shape and form it may be, is dehumanizing and crippling. This brings us to the question of poverty. What does Pope Francis mean when he says he wishes for a poor church for the poor? Last week he issued a, I forget if it was a statement or if he mentioned it in a homily, it was basically a brief reflection in preparation for Lent. It came out the same day someone sent me a king cake and I had to check my calendar to make sure Ash Wednesday wasn't right around the corner. It's March 5th, we got time. That reflection was on poverty, and he highlighted the passage from 2 Corinthians. St. Paul writes, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Obviously in this passage, poor and rich are not meant, at least primarily, in their material senses. Jesus Christ may have been relatively materially poor, the son of a carpenter, but that certainly has not made me materially rich. What does it mean? There is a concept, to get back to the incarnation, there is a concept that I like to call the poverty of God, that is scandalous if you think about it. It's easy to recall what Christ did for us. The suffering that he offered up for us. But perhaps the greatest thing he did was to suffer us. What I mean by that is to put himself in a position where we could love him. God's love for us is great, and I don't in any way mean to diminish that. That is great. Better than anything else. But what does it mean to you that God, I told you I would do that. What does it mean to you that God lets you love him? When God became man, when he made himself subject to us in certain ways, we killed him, he decided to suffer us. He made himself vulnerable to us. I think about this every advent, As a parent, I've held a brand newborn baby. That God became totally helpless for us so that we could love him. Strikes me as a preposterous idea, silly idea, which just proves that my ways are not God's ways. God's poverty God became poor for our sake. He became poor so that we could love him. Very often, poverty, and Pope Francis says this, um, I I won't inflict the quote on you, but poverty becomes uh, a matter of of exclusion. It's not simply a material poverty, but the poor are cut off from the rest of society. They're excluded. As I tried to show with that story, they're told you don't have anything to offer, which is in many ways worse than material poverty. It's dehumanizing. They're treated as having absolutely nothing to offer. The poor need us, yes, but never forget for a moment how we need the poor. A church that is poor and for the poor is not a church conformed to some socio-economic category. It is a church conformed to the Christ who was crucified. It is a church that imitates the God who suffers our love. God does not need our love. He suffers it. This is the poverty of God. Let us try and see each other with his eyes. When we do, we will find the cross. It's always there. And when we do, we will be like Christ on the way to Calvary, bruised, hurting, and dirty, just like Him. Faith and Reason podcasts. New media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.